Hello and welcome to episode number 298 of the Armin Show podcast. I'm your host, Armin Shervanian, and it's always cool on here. In this episode, our guest is the author of Life's Edge, the life that we all lead, Life's Edge, the search for what it means to be alive. Author Carl Zimmer joins on the show. He is a professor at Yale in molecular biophysics and biochemistry. He's a science writer, blogger, columnist, journalist, specializes in evolution, parasites, and heredity, contributes to the New York Times, Discover, and National Geographic, and is real prolific. Carl, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I am glad to. In the previous time, we only had audio, but on this time, we are in full video, which is exciting, along with the future. <laughs> the first thing that always comes to mind is a focus that I always take note of. You are very prolific. You have written a lot of books, many, including She Has Her Mother's Laugh. We spoke about that before. How did you become so prolific in the first place? Was it an effort or did you always just make things? Um, I, I have, uh, whenever, as far back as I can think, you know, I was always writing things, um, little short stories or cartoons or something. Uh, so, you know, it, it's certainly, um, you know, when people tell me like, oh, I'd love to write a book, but writing so hard, I, it's interesting because like, they clearly do not like to sit down and write. And I have to say that like, I like that, you know, um, now it, I don't like it when I write something I'm not satisfied with. And I don't like it when I have to revise a draft or that I thought was in great shape before. <clears throat> There's a lot that's hard about writing, but um, yeah, I just, I mean, it's just, just something that, I, that I've always done. And, um, you know, working um, at uh, magazines, I started Discover Magazine and now mainly contributing to the New York Times. Um, that's certainly good training for um, getting things done, you know, uh, to, you have a deadline, there's a space on a page that's waiting for your story. Uh, people don't want to hear about how you're not quite satisfied with a piece or, or you're just waiting for inspiration to strike. You've got to get it done. Uh, and uh, so that kind of gets you into the habit of, of um, focusing on a subject uh, and, and really sort of bringing your effort to bear on it and then, um, and then finishing. And so then you can go on to the next thing. Um, so, you know, I've been, do and I've been doing this for a while now. So uh, uh, it, it, you, you do get more efficient as well. I mean, I remember the first story I wrote must've been like 300 words about um, some beetles in the Caribbean who give off a uh, interesting glow. And, oh my gosh, I must've worked like two weeks on that story. Um, it was just torture. Um, after a while, you can do a story like that in a day, maybe in a couple hours after a while, just because you you know sort of how the pieces fit together, you know how to interview people, you know how to get the questions you need uh, answered, um, but that just takes practice. So, you know, I, when I talk with, people who are just starting out with writing, I just say, look, don't, don't be too brutal on yourself. Just be ready to just sit down every day and write. This is a great point about the early process, always taking way longer, but not necessarily needing to take way longer. 
would you tell the person who was writing that original article of 300 words to just put something out? Uh, no, um, because, you know, you, if you're just doing your first piece, um, you, you don't, you, there's just so much that you've got to, to learn and so much, you know, and, and, and you don't yet have that sort of intuition that um, everything's, everything that you need is there. Um, I, I will say that um, I, I felt I, I, it was a great uh, um, stroke of good fortune, I guess, that, uh, you know, I was doing this uh, on a staff at a magazine. You know, you know, it, um, you know I'm talking the, the early 90s. Um, so this is, you know, way back when, and this is like, you know, very different than the, the, the journalism landscape today. So a lot of people who are starting out um, are freelancing um, and uh, don't have a whole lot of guidance from from editors. Um, it's de it's definitely uh, 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 there are a lot of challenges that 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 comes with that. Um, and I you know I, I think that I, I I think that that publications would be better off. Um, uh, offering more mentorship to the people that they're getting work from rather than just chewing people up and spitting them out. Um, so it's, uh, I, there, there's, <laughs> journalism has changed a lot and, and in some cases not for the better, I have to say. I like this point about being a two-way street, being more beneficial. When I recently talked with ethicist Susan Liotau, she talked about how companies that have a terms of service have a requirement or ethical interest in also explaining it well to the consumer so that they could fully understand what's being said. It's like a two-way communication. In the same way, it makes sense that if publications can support the people who are with them and give them guidance, kind of like a program. Do you know David Perel, the writer, or programs no. like that? No. No. There are some people on the internet that are like, writing teachers and they'll run like a thousand person course and kind of thing do you think that is valuable or that that is like a short-term fun hobby more likely and usually the person that would have written on their own would have written on their own um i i i don't know i mean i i it, it can be valuable it really depends a lot on on the person you know i there's some people who um are very self-motivated and are really just effectively taught themselves. There are some people who um, need just needed the guidance of a good editor, uh, and then other people who really benefited from you know going to journalism school, for example, like a like a whole uh, set of courses. Um, and uh, so I, I, it's hard to um, to sort of come with a one you know, one size fits all type of, of rule about these things. Um, uh, it, it, um, I do think that, uh, you know, I, I teach a lot myself and, um, you know, I, I, I don't think that these things scale very well. Uh, I, I, I just don't, I mean, you know, in order to really help, you know, a 20 year old who's just starting to learn how to do this stuff, 
it takes time, you know, now like outside of, outside, outside of the class, I'll, I'll have office hours and I can talk for quite a while with a student going paragraph by paragraph through a piece and just, you know, helping them to think about um, how they can, you know, find their own voice and, and tell a good story uh, effectively on the page. So, yeah, so these sort of mass online courses, um, I'm a little, just a little skeptical that they're going to work for, for writing. Hmm. And then one other item on writing, usually before you go into a project, what percent of knowledge or curiosity do you already have in that project before you do a lot of research and figure it out? Is it, you start from scratch from nothing. You're like, I'd like to check this out and understand more about this. Or is it, you already have 20% of sense on a certain category and then you go fill in the other 80%. Well, um, you know, I, I, I think at this point in my career, um, you know, uh, there's a lot of things where I'm, I'm following certain um, lines of research. You know, I want to know like where things stand now. So, you know, um, you know, I remember when the, the Human Genome Project was underway in the, in the 90s, way back when, to date myself, like there was a lot I had to learn a lot beyond what you just learn in a basic biology class, um, a lot about how scientists sequence DNA, how they assemble these little fragments together, how, how they read it, how they interpret it. It was just a, uh, it took years to really get up to speed on all of that. Um, now, now, like uh, that, I don't need to do that. Um, but what I do need to do is every now and then I have to stop and say like, okay, like, the science has changed a lot in the past few years. I have to update my sort of basic understanding. You know, sometimes it's just the, the technology, the machines that people use are totally different. Um, so DNA sequencing for the genome project, like there are technologies like something called nanopore sequencing, which is just fundamentally different than uh, the, the kind of uh, sequencing that happened 20 years ago or 30 years ago. So, you know, it takes a little while to sort of get up to speed on how these things work and what their strengths and weaknesses are and, and so on and how to write about them. So, um, so, you know, I think over if when you're in a career, you can get more familiar with things, but um, you do, do you definitely do not want to get stuck uh, thinking that everything is the way it was 20 years ago. I like that point right there. We always have to be ready for the new or else we're stuck in the past and then the past will repeat and that was a waste of the current moment. Valid, valid point. Now, your previous book went into heredity in detail. Life's Edge pulls it back even further. What caused you to make that transition, almost deconstructing another layer back? Uh, yeah, I would say that, you know, I, I have just been kind of wondering about this in the back of my head for a very, very long time. And it, the time just felt right to, to delve into this as, as a book. Um, you know, I, I write about biology uh, ever since I wrote that first article about beetles in the Caribbean. I've been writing about living things and there's... Uh, there's a lot that they have in common, but they're also very different. Uh, you know, a, a glowing beetle is very different than a python, very different than a jellyfish, very different than a, a, a redwood tree. So what unites them? 
and you can say, oh, well, they all have DNA. And it's like, okay, well, so what? I mean, what, what does that mean? Um, you know, people, and then people <clears throat> will sometimes say, well, here's a list of things that, that uh, everything that's alive ha has in common. Those lists tend to fall apart when you look at them closely, or you will end up with really hard cases where you're like, well, is this particular example alive or not? And you don't really know. Um, and so I just, I just found it fascinating that scientists um, have come up with hundreds of different definitions of life and continue to come up with new ones. They're not converging towards one. Uh, and so, you know, in a way, um, you know, the more we learn about the, the details of life, you know, one species or another and, or, or particular kinds of cells and how they behave, um, we still are left with the, with the huge challenge of, of understanding uh, life and drawing that edge around it, trying to figure out, well, what, what is different from the living and the non-living worlds? So the book is, is kind of a, a travelogue along the sort of borderland. Now for this category, which scientists are the go-to scientists in order to figure out where the edge is? What category of scientists are the best for that? Well, you know, it's interesting because um, biologists are usually not trained to think about these uh, issues or to work in this borderland. Um, they, you know, so I, so I write about um, certain kinds of life in the book that, you know, I think are really exemplary sort of hallmarks. Uh, they show hallmarks of life in a very exemplary way. So metabolism um, is obviously a really important issue with life. And, and for me, you know, the, the really, the champion of metabolism is, is pythons and boa constrictors because um, they go from eating nothing for weeks to, uh, to suddenly swallowing an animal whole and increasing their metabolic rate uh, to incredible levels, like a galloping racehorse type level, in order to break this food down. Uh, and then they absorb it into their body and then they go back down to that different metabolic rate again. So, you know, there's, there's a scientist that I spent time with feeding rats to snakes and talking about what was going on inside of them uh, named Stephen Secor. And, you know, he's spent 40 years uh, pretty much just, uh, or, pretty much just focused on studying snakes uh, and, and increasingly trying to figure out this incredible feat that they have. So that's just, that's it. Like you do not go to him to ask about a redwood tree. <laughs> so, um, so, the, so you do have to go and look for some unusual sorts of scientists. So often it's like the scientists who are studying the origin of life or who are trying to make life from scratch or trying to find life on other planets who are kind of backed into thinking about these issues. Um, you know, scientists who study viruses where they're, you know, they, they, they have this thing staring them in the face that is kind of alive and kind of not alive. Um, but even then, it's amazing, you know, a lot, uh, you know, I will, I will talk, I, in the book, I talk with an astrobiologist named Laurie Barge and I'm like, what's, what's your definition of life? You know, as you think about whether there's life say on a frozen moon of Saturn. And she's like, I try to avoid them. You know, like it's just, it get kind of gets in her way, she finds of her research. So, um, so sometimes you're actually like left 
talking with the philosophers, like because they're the ones who are really thinking through the meaning of our concepts, what what we intend with the words that we use and, and how those affect the way we do science. Hmm. I like that, looking at the edge between items. I recently spoke about the edge between ethics and law. This is the edge between life and non-life. Look, looking at extremophiles makes sense. The most extreme organisms that we know of. Aside from metabolism, what else is a feature that looks to be informative as far as life? Um, one is the homeostasis. Uh, and this is a really, um, a really incredible property of living things that I think gets kind of overlooked. You know, so you and I are holding our body temperatures very stable, even as we go inside or outside as, as the air around us is hot or cold. And that takes all sorts of very complicated um, networks of responses to, <clears throat> to keep things stable. Um, the same goes for our levels of blood sugar and, and other things that we need to keep very, very stable in order to operate. We, we create an internal environment and other living things do the same thing and they can shift their homeostasis around. So a hibernating bat, I write about hibernating bats that I visited in the book and you know they can be flying around and be working really hard and being able to dump a lot of heat out of their body so they don't overheat. Um, and they can sort of keep that, that homeostasis. But then, you know, in the winter in, uh, in Northern areas, bats will go into caves or abandoned mines and then shift into hibernation where they're still alive. They're still, their metabolism is still running, but they are now, their temperature is down to, you know, body temperatures down in the 40 40s, I believe. Um, so, you know, you can set these, these set points for, for homeostasis. Um, and, you know, even bacteria can do this in the sense that like they keep levels of different molecules inside of them relatively stable and, and, and in balance. And you have to keep, they, these, these cells have to keep things in balance or they just get disrupted and die off. So, uh, so homeostasis is, is another one. In addition, there are things like uh, reproduction and, and evolution. And also I would, um, I argue in the book that um, there's something that you could call intelligence that's a hallmark of life. And I don't mean um, taking an SAT test. I mean, the way that living things are able to perceive their environment and make decisions based on that information. Uh, and so I, I focus on these weird creatures called slime molds uh, that, uh, 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 that they, they, they live on the forest floor. They're they, these weird sort of pulsating mass of goo. And uh, they're just, each one is just a single cell, um, a, a gigantic cell, but just a single cell nonetheless. There's no brains involved, no nervous system, nothing except a cell. But that cell can move around and optimize the way it travels and finds food and feeds in a really astonishing way and in a way that actually kind of, that um, actually mimics the way that mathematicians solve uh, p mathematical problems. Uh, and uh, so, so that's another property of life that I think gets overlooked. I like that part. I've always enjoyed slime molds and 
what they do with not much quote intelligence like we would describe it it's almost like i think of cities and how they'll develop from the main center and go outward to the certain points that would be the most next populated almost like water and then we do that and then a slime mold would also do that but we would think that water is inanimate and then a slime mold is not intelligent and we're the top of the line i always find that to be funny that's pretty good one is we're looking at different types of organisms but what about within organism this is a i guess more popular issue but between when an organism an egg is fertilized and it is growing when is that alive when is that not this is way more popular than i usually go in terms of topic but where would that be at well, yeah, I, I, here is an incredibly controversial way of thinking about uh, about life. Um, where at it, when we think about reproduction, the fertilization uh, and development of embryos, um, it's very common for people to talk about this in terms of life. In, in other words, like when does life begin? And, P and so there are a lot of people, especially a lot of uh, politicians who will say over and over and over again, uh, life begins at conception and, and science proves it. And, you know, I think there again, we have to, to stop and say, well, what are we talking about when we talk about life? You know, I just gave you a bunch of hallmarks uh, of life. Um, and, you know, I've, in many ways, you know, those, those cells that gave rise to that fertilized egg, they were alive. Um, they had homeostasis. They were managing their internal environment. They were carrying out metabolism. Um, you know, these, these, you know, this, this it, it, sperm have a, and egg both have a, eggs both have a certain kind of slime mold type intelligence, you know, sperm know how to find eggs. They, they swim along and hunt for them. You know, eggs, quote unquote, make decisions about which, which sperm to accept. So, uh, uh, so I think that, you know, when you really like push at this, that, that whole notion just falls apart. Uh, maybe people mean, well, oh, a life begins at conception. Um, in particular, they mean a human life. But what, you know, what, you know, what dis distinguishes a quote unquote human life from the very moment before. People will say, well, it's because now there's a genome, new genome. And, and it's like, well, sorry, no, that's not good enough. Because at the moment of fertilization, those two genomes of male and female remain pretty autonomous and separate. They're operating separately. It takes a while before they really become integrated into um, a genome that is that is operating as a new unified whole. Even then, um, that, you know, you, if you take that genome as being like, oh, that's it. Now we mark the time where a human life has begun. That mass of cells can split into two and you can now have identical twins. So we've gone from a human life to two human lives. And like, so that, that but the, yet that genome was already there. So that falls apart as well. You can have other cases where, where these clumps of cells from you know, different embryos fuse together and form a new unified whole. That person, you know, sometimes it would be called a chimera. That person does not get two votes. They're not two people. They're not two human lives. They're one human life. So, um, 
so, you know, I, I, I just think that, um, and again and again, it's, we, we are tempted to, to uh, come up with simple stories about life and life always defies those simple stories. Mm-hmm. I've never been a fan of the simple story that lacks nuance because there's always details missing and it's a nice popular message, but it doesn't have much thought. Speaking of that, actually, critical thought, how, how often do you see a good level of critical thought in public discourse and how can that be spread further? Um, you know, there's, there are not a, there are a lot of options we have for, for, uh, uncritical discourse, uh, you know, um, you know, we, we, we have, um, you know, incredibly powerful companies that have made huge amounts of money sort of optimizing um, social media to, to give us things that, that make us respond uh, in, a, in a very emotional way um, and not actually like engage with people um, in, in, a, in a particularly meaningful way. Um, and um, you know, in, in a, you know, in, I, but there, you know, of course there, there are, you know, people still do read books um, and which is, which is heartening and um, <laughs> you know, po- podcasts, you know, depending on the podcast, you can, it can be um, a good way to sort of engage with some of these issues. But, um, but again, you know, podcasts can also just turn into a, a couple of people sitting around and, and, you know, saying you are so right. That is so right. Those people are idiots. And, you know, I, I, I get, I get tired of those sorts of uh, conversations pretty quickly. Right. I think that is a lot of podcasts. That's a good point. There's some agreements there. And you know what, Carl, I don't agree with what you're saying. I'll <laughs> if it and therefore you're a terrible person. <laughs> Darn it. I've been found out. Yeah, we disagree. There's a lot of counterforce here and people should know that joke that's pretty good now opposite of the a concept is uh when we can declare someone legally not alive anymore they have lived and at some point transitioning where is that cutoff point is it the brain uh again it it depends on what you mean by life you know we we define death in part by how we define life um and we're, we we are increasingly forced to um, to think about this uh, uh, in ways we didn't have to before, um, just because um, we have you know new kinds of technology that uh, can prolong um, life. I guess we can call it uh, in ways that uh, were not possible before. So, uh, for example. Um, you know, I, I talk in the book about, um, you know, the, the development of ventilation uh, machines and how that created sort of a new class of patients who had massive brain damage, but were still um, functioning at the level of their, their lungs taking in oxygen and their heart beating and all the rest. And, and so um, this 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 new state of being 
needed a name. <clears throat> and so, uh, so this led to the, the, the uh, concept of, of brain death and brain death being a legal definition of death. Um, but that, you know, pe people have challenged that. Um, and I write about one case of a, you know, of a girl who uh, lived for a couple of years um, on, uh, on a, uh, uh, on a ventilator in this with, without brain function. Um, and, you know, her, her mother did not want her uh, taken off because she felt, well, she's still alive. And, you know, some people argue like, well, you know, her body does have homeostasis and all these other features. So why isn't that life? Uh, and then others say like, well, for humans, like life means that all these systems are integrated and, and the the most important level of integration is, is our brains. And if you don't have a brain anymore that can do that, then you're not alive. So, you know, we, again, um, uh, people who, who think that these are, are simple questions uh, will find themselves sooner or later in these very difficult cases. Right. The questions lead to the, that's the cool part about uh, writing up or coming up with questions takes you in a category you had to come up with the question in the first place one thing that comes to mind is who are some key scientists you have met along the way who have uh, given you key information or were valuable to you as far as this book or this one and recent books well, one uh, scientist who uh, comes to mind right away is um, a scientist named David Deemer. Um, he's at the University of California, Santa Cruz. He, he's been retired for a little while now. He's in his early 80s. Um, I have been reporting on him off and on for, gosh, I want to say, um, well, well over 20 years. Um, and uh, he studies the origin of life, and he has developed this interesting view uh, about how you know an important aspect of life is that uh, living things have boundaries. So you and I are not just these diffuse clouds of molecules. Uh, if we were, we just sort of like disperse, and that would be it. Um, so, uh, so in order to have all the the cool reactions that take place and the processes and the information flows, um, we, need, we need to be tightly packed. Um, and so, so he was a, he's been asking for a long time, well, how would you get, you know, protocells with, with boundaries? And he studies uh, molecules called lipids. These are um, sort of fatty molecules that um, help form our cell membranes um, and they're thanks in part to Deemer and other people, um, they're now ubiquitous in technology. So like maybe like your shampoo has uh, little lipid spheres with little chemicals inside of them and, and so on. And even um, our COVID-19 vaccines um, take advantage of this. Uh, so uh, the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines uh, are these little bubbles of lipids with RNA inside. David Deemer actually thinks that maybe the first forms of life kind of look like those vaccines. In other words, a little lipid bubble with some RNA inside of it. And he has done research, uh, right about the book, suggesting how maybe uh, in ponds uh, on the sides of volcanoes on the early earth, 
life could have come about this way. Um, but it's, it's, a, it's a challenging thing to say exactly when life began. You know, um, you might have had like sort of cycles of chemistry taking place that, you know, like have a certain lifelike quality to them, but aren't life as we know it. But then eventually gave rise to cells that could really like do a lot of the things we think of as life. Um, so, so, you know, he's still, he's, he's still busy writing away. He's, he's started up a couple companies based on his, his concepts and he's a fascinating uh, character. So I really enjoyed writing about him at more length in the book. Right. You had mentioned protocells in the book. You had mentioned like the beginnings of just the cerebral cortex of the brain, but not the other parts as much. Uh, based on what you have looked at, what does it look like as far as how soon we create multiple parts of the brain working in concert? Yeah, so so when I was getting interested in um, when life begins, especially human life, um, I got I started to explore some of the advances in reproductive technology and uh, developmental biology. And I, I think one of the most amazing developments is, is uh, the ability to make what are called organoids. Um, and so these uh, are clusters of cells, clumps of cells that uh, behave a, a lot like our organs. Uh, and the most incredible of all, I think, are the brain organoids. And so what you can do is you can just take a, a skin cell from someone put it in a dish, hit it with some chemicals, and essentially you reprogram it so that it's going to behave like um, a cell in an embryo. In particular, a cell that's like progenitor of a brain. So this neuron starts to, to grow and divide and divide and divide. And now you have thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of, of these neurons all growing together in, in, their, in your dish. And they are differentiating. Uh, they are forming different types of neurons and they are forming structures. So like our cortex, which is sort of the outer layers of our brain where a lot of our most important thinking takes place. You see uh, layers like that in, in these uh, brain organoids, even though they're you know, a little clump smaller than a pea. Uh, and they even start to produce what seem like brain waves. So, um, you know, if, if we're, there, there's something strange there about like, well, is this a new life that's beginning? Um, what is it that we, we're dealing with in here? The, you know, the, the, this is a pretty new science, so I don't know exactly where it's going to go, but it, one possibility is that scientists are going to be able to grow um, organoids for different parts of the brain you know, the cortex, maybe, um, maybe the cerebellum, maybe some sort of, uh, you know, you can grow a retina organoid and then you can plug them together. People are already starting to do this. And um, do you, do you then have an organoid that can see, you know, like that's, can't rule that out. Um, is this going to be an organoid that can learn about what it sees? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Um, but it's it's really quite astonishing research. This is true. I'm always most interested in the brain and I always found it to be the most interesting part of basically our planet because it seems to make almost everything else, which is pretty cool. Now, 
we had mentioned scientists, but what about, are there any science writers that you have modeled after or have looked at as key individuals in that category? Um, I, you know, certainly when I was starting out, um, you know, there were uh, some writers who I really admired, you know, some were scientists um, like Stephen Jay Gould, the evolutionary biologist who, who showed how you could really showed me how, uh, you know, a magazine essay could, uh, about science could be a real, a real art form. Uh, then there are, you know, nonfiction writers, uh, often journalists who are writing about science who show how you can turn, uh, turn science and, and, and the writing about it into, um, you know, a real literary genre. Um, I think my first, Maybe the first one who made a real impression on me was maybe Jonathan Weiner or John McPhee. Um, you know, I've certainly you know gone on to read lots of other great stuff uh, that uh, I've uh, that's influenced me one way or the other. I you know in my class I I teach um, a, a day about Silent Spring, um, not so much as for its historical importance and giving rise to the sort of environmental movement. Uh, that we have today, but as a piece of writing, because it's a really astonishing uh, work of nonfiction. Um, so, you know, there, there, there are lots of um, writers that, that I admire. I, on, I, I've been trying to sort of keep a running list of some of my favorite pieces um, for, that I assigned my course on, on um, my website, um, because there's just so much to pick from. I like a lot of things mentioned, like keeping a record is nice. Also, I like where you said they showed and then you, you switched it to showed me. In life, I notice there's things and then there's the things that really resonate with us that suddenly we're like, oh, okay, this is something we can look at and take from and it's only for us. Maybe a lot of other people would notice that same thing and just pass by and it's not a big deal to them. But some things fit us, which is kind of cool. One thing that always I noticed when I'm reading a variety of science-related books, do you notice a variety of research coming from certain areas, like the United Kingdom has a good chunk of evolutionary biology or certain regions have way more research than other regions? Um, you know, I do, I do think that there are some ways that, you know, some uh, countries or, or regions specialize in some kinds of science. Um, and, uh, you know, during the pandemic, um, you know, a, a, a really important uh, part of fighting the coronavirus was tracking its evolution. Uh, and there, were, there are a group of evolutionary biologists who specialize in looking at um, mutations and viruses and using that information to build their family tree and to, to, to track how the virus is changing. Um, and uh, they've done it for influenza and Ebola, and now they're doing it for COVID-19. And the real um, center of, of that world is, is in the United Kingdom. And, and so they've really led uh, all, all the, the world in, in our understanding of, of that. Um, you know, I think that, um, you know, on a, for my own part, I, I think I'm, I'm, I probably have a, I probably don't have a very good um, uh, sort of 
a bird's eye view of things just because I think uh, language is one issue, you know. Um, I speak English pretty well. I speak French terribly and I don't speak anything else. So, um, you know, so so if, if you're not able to really like connect uh, with, with language, then you're just not gonna be that aware of work that's happening elsewhere. So there are amazing studies happening all over the world and, um, you know, language and other factors make, can make it difficult for reporters to um, really, um, uh, uh, access that stuff. Um, so, um, so that's one of the nice things about a, a sort of a journalism world that is, you know, connected online and where you can potentially have people writing from different parts of the world because you know, there's the possibility that people with different kinds of, of experiences, expertise, uh, cultural backgrounds can, can tell stories that, you know, somebody like me sitting in the Northeastern United States would not be able to on their own. That makes sense. As far as the impacts from the last year, how much has that changed journalism as it applies to you as, a, as, as related to maybe two, three years ago? Has it changed that much or were you already very electronically and virtually established before this? Um, this past year has been pretty intense. So while I was finishing up Life's Edge, I was helping with the New York Times' coverage of COVID-19. I'm, I'm still doing that. Um, and, you know, we're, suddenly the, you know, science stories were uh, the, the front page news every single day um, and sometimes several times a day. And so, you know, we've had to work really hard and uh, develop new ways of presenting information like like uh, trackers to show where vaccines are in their development i you know we we have um not been waiting so much for papers to come out in peer review because a lot of times the information is just too important to wait um, but that creates uh, risks because you might be giving attention to something, a study that's just not very good and will be misleading and soon to be disproven. So it definitely has had new challenges. You know, I'm, I'm hoping in the next few months that life is going to kind of move back towards something more normal. Um, and I don't know how much of these changes will stay in place uh, and how much we'll sort of swing back to the way things, the way we did journalism in 2019. We'll see. Right. The counter perspective is cool. As far as Life's Edge, I always like to check what is one message you would want all people to know, a takeaway message about the book that they could use for their daily life? Um, I, I think that, uh, you know, in our daily life, <laughs> and there's a word again, yeah, I would say, I would say, think about that life that is your daily life and, and ask yourself, well, what is that exactly? What does that mean to you? And what is your daily life? Uh, what does it have in common with maybe the daily life of, you know, that pine tree at your window? or the monarch butterfly that's flitting past, uh, what, what, do you, what do you have in common? And, 
and you know how are you different than um, you know maybe uh, you know the maybe the mountain you just hiked the other day. Um, you know the, these um, these these are questions always worth asking, and and there are you know you may not be able to find an answer, but that's okay because centuries of scientists have tried to find an answer, and they've they fail time after time in the most interesting ways. Uh, and I try to sort of give a sense of some of that, that uh, fascinating failure in my book. <laughs> fascinating failure. That's alliteration, everybody. Now, I would like to thank you for having been on this episode. It is wonderful to speak with you. You're very conversational and fluid, and that comes from science writing and prolific nature and also your internal. Glad to have you on this show, Carl. Thanks very so much for having me. Good talking with you. And you as well. And we are out.